The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. I invite you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. I remember visiting the Legacy Museum in Montgomery and walking up to this massive picture of a, a crowd that just, it, it, it seemed to be countless. It was estimated to be as many as 15,000 people. It's the largest crowd ever gathered to watch the lynching of a black man in America. And my eyes scanned to the caption at the bottom of the photo, and the first thing that I saw was the location. Paris, Texas. It's where I was born. When I was really young, my family moved to Albany, Georgia. That's where I grew up. It's a city with a history not unlike Birmingham's, a place of racism, supremacist ideology, violence, injustice. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was imprisoned in Albany before he was ever imprisoned in Birmingham. I grew up there, and now I pastor here. My life has been lived in these cities. And I have to ask, has it been shaped by them? Have I been complicit in the sins of my cities? Sins that clearly do not completely lie in the past. Our country is still rattled by racism. Am I complicit? Are we? Like, the church, is the church complicit? Shades, my heart is heavy. Our country is hurting. Our black brothers and sisters are hurting. And I'm just asking, is there any word from the Lord for our heavy and hurting hearts? I do not think that it is a mere coincidence that the Lord has us in Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 to 17 today. I believe that the words that Jesus speaks here to the church at Pergamum, that this, these are the words that we need to hear. So, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. If you recall, the book of Revelation was sent to seven churches in Asia Minor. And where we are right now in chapters 2 and 3, those two chapters contain a personalized message for each of these churches. They, they come to us in, geographical, in the geographical order in which these churches would have received the book, but if you recall from a couple of weeks ago, I told you that there's not just a geographical structure to the order of these messages. There's also a literary structure. They form a, a chiasm. Chiasm is a literary structure where the outermost elements of something match, and then you move one step in and those things match, and you move a step in, so forth and so on, until you get to the emphasized middle. And if you look at these seven messages to the churches, our outer messages match. 
to Ephesus and Laodicea. These are churches that think they're doing great, but they are in the worst condition. Their messages match. You move one step in to Smyrna and Philadelphia, and these are the churches that look the worst but are doing the best. We saw that with Smyrna last week. They're poor and yet enduring persecution for the Lord. These things match. And then you get to the middle three. And these middle three churches are made up of mixed congregations. You got the outer ones, everybody doing bad. Next, everybody's doing great. Middle ones, it's mixed. Some people are doing okay and some are mixed up in the idolatry, the immorality, the ideology of their cities. Their sins match the sins of their cities. And this, this is the heart of our chiasm. This is the emphasized middle. And it's the emphasized middle because this is what lies at the heart of Revelation. The heart of the book of Revelation is the fight to cling to Christ and witness to his worth amidst a world of idolatry and immorality. At the heart of Revelation is the fight to cling to Christ instead of giving in to the ideologies of this world. How are you and I going to do that? Like especially amidst temptation and tribulation amidst pressure and persecution how are you and i going to conquer with christ when everything in this world feels like it's aiming to conquer you this is the heart of what revelation unveils how we conquer by clinging to christ this is what we need to see because this is what we need to see because the heart of this chiasm of messages unveils the reality of just how easily the church gives in to idolatry to immorality to the ideologies of this world the the three churches in the center of this chiasm they are they're pergamum thyatira and sardis and we're going to take them one at a time over the next three weeks and we're going to see a progression amongst them with regards to ideology and immorality like by the time we get to Sardis, the third one, we're going to see a church that's spiritually dead. That's where idolatry and immorality ends. Back up one step to Thyatira, which we'll get to next week, and we'll see a church that's begun participating in idolatry and immorality. They are on their way to a Sardis-like destination of being spiritually dead. I mean, we can see clearly a trajectory with Thyatira and Sardis of giving in to idolatry and immorality. It leads to spiritual death. That's where this thing ends. But where does it begin? Pergamum shows us. Pergamum shows us where the compromise with idolatry and the immorality of our culture begins. And it is so subtle. Shades, it is, is so subtle. We must see how it is that the church begins to compromise, lest such compromise subtly begin among us. And we become complicit with the sins of our cities. Let's see the beginning of compromise together. We see it through Christ's word to Pergamon. He gives them three words. A word of commendation, a word of accusation, and a word of exhortation. Let's take them one at a time. First, commendation. Christ commends those who cling to his name. Christ commends those who cling, hold fast to his name. Look at verses 12 and 13. 
And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell. To all the other churches, he says, I know your works. To Pergamum, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet, you hold fast, you cling to my name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Jesus introduces himself here with the words of Revelation 1 and verse 16. He's the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. This is the Jesus that Pergamum needs because they are living under the threat of the sword, sword of Rome. Jesus with a sword would be quite comforting to them. They are living under the threat of the sword of Rome because they are living in the very place where Satan apparently has his throne. Verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Skip to the end of the verse, where Satan dwells. What does that mean? It could, could mean a couple of different things. Because you see, Pergamum is the, the heart of, of religion in Asia Minor. They're like, they're, they're not the capital they used to be. That's Ephesus now. But they are still hanging on to being the religious capital here. They had a, they had a massive altar to Zeus Soter. Soter is the Greek word for savior. Zeus, our, our savior. Zeus, if you're familiar with Greek mythology at all, he's the chief of the pagan pantheon. Pergamum's where he had his throne. So perhaps that's why this is the place of Satan's throne. But wait, there's more. Behind door number two is the temple to Asclepius Soter. Asclepius Savior. Asclepius was the god of healing and Pergamum had the center, the seat of his cult. Asclepius' symbol is a serpent. You know this. You've seen it. Have you ever wondered why in a lot of medical sim- symbolism there there's an image of a snake often wrapped around a stick look look at a paramedic badge it's a snake wrapped around a stick that's the staff of asclepius it's an ancient symbol for the god of of healing and his serpentine symbolism was all over the place in pergamum and we know that a serpent is a biblical image for satan We're going to run into that in Revelation when we get to chapter 12. He is that ancient serpent. So perhaps, really quick, pause, all my medical professionals, you're okay. You can wear it, all right? It's fine. It's fine. It it doesn't mean that anymore, all right? Sorry, just that thought came to mind. Okay, unpause. Continuing on. But the serpent's biblical image for Satan, so perhaps this is why Pergamum is the place where Satan dwells, because it is the seat of the Asclepian cult but wait there's more behind door number three is the temple to the emperor himself pergamum was the first city in all of asia minor to build a temple for emperor worship smyrna beat them to building a temple to worship the city of rome but they were the first to build a temple for emperor worship they were the first to worship the throne of rome i actually think that it is likely all three of these pagan centers of worship emperor worship the asclepian cult 
Zeus's altar. It's likely this satanic trinity that caused Jesus to call Pergamum the place where Satan's throne is. Y'all are dealing with the heart of everything there. Satan's throne was threatening them with the sword of Rome. And still they clung to Christ. Look at verse 13 again. You hold fast to my name and you did not deny my faith. Even, even when it heats up, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, my faithful Martus, my faithful witness who was killed among you. They hold fast and cling to the name of Christ. That is, they cling to him. In Scripture, typically a name is not merely an identifying label like we use it. I mean, we can just name our kids whatever we want to name our kids because it sounds cute and cool, right? Usually in Scripture, a name is not merely an identifying name, a label, but it's, it's bound up with a person's reputation. We still use it that way a little bit when we talk about we need to have a good name or don't tarnish your good name. It's more the way it's being used here. It's bound up with someone's reputation and their character. It's the essence of who they are. It is a revelation of their identity. To cling to the name of Jesus is to cling to Jesus for who He is and who He's been revealed to be. To pray, as Jesus taught us to pray, that the name of God would be hallowed, is to pray that God would be hallowed for who he is and who he's revealed himself to be. These Christians cling to Christ for who he is, even when it's costly. And it cost one of them his life. Antipas, my faithful witness. Martus, you'll recognize our word martyr. It comes from the Greek word martus, which literally just means witness. It would come to mean someone who witnesses by giving their very life. Someone who witnesses unto death. Faithful witness. We've already heard that phrase once in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5 where Jesus himself was called the faithful witness. And now he shares his title with Antipas. He bestows it on Antipas because just as Jesus was faithful unto death, Antipas has faithfully followed the Lamb, bearing witness to the worth of Christ, and he is worth more than his life. Even when Antipas was killed, these Christians didn't quit clinging to the name of Christ. They still follow the Lamb. Not fearing ultimately the sword of Rome, but faithfully fearing Christ who carries the sharp two-edged sword that will one day put an end to every Rome ever. We don't fear the sword of Rome. We fear the one that carries that sword. And Christ commends those who cling to his name. Shades, does he commend us for doing the same? I love, I love our city. I love our country. But there are days when it feels like we live where Satan dwells. Sure, the people around us in our city may not be bowing down to Zeus as the chief of the gods, but people sure are trying to be their own chief, their own god, their own Zeus. People may not worship at the cult of Asclepius Soter, God of healing, but, but we sure do have our own modern versions of health, wealth, beauty cults. Just flip open social media and see people who promote them. We call them influencers. And this health, wealth, and beauty will ultimately give you the salvation of happiness. Shades, that is a serpent that will ultimately strangle the life right out of you. 
We may not bow down and worship an emperor in our country, but we sure are convinced that our salvation lies in the power of politics. And amidst this culture, does Christ look at the church in America and say, you hold fast to my name? Does He say that to us? Shades, Shades. May, we, may we be like Pergamum in this way. May we be like them in this way. May, may, may we be commended for clinging to Jesus' name. But commendation is not all that Jesus has to say. He has a second word. A word of accusation. And we might wonder how. Like after you hear that word of commendation... What, what could the accusation possibly be? These people have been clinging to Christ amidst pressure and persecution, even when it's been costly and one of them have died. And yet, compromise has subtly begun at Pergamum. How? We see that with this second word, the word of accusation. Christ rebukes those who compromise with any other name. Christ rebukes those who compromise with any other name. Verse 14 to 16. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. When, uh, when I was in high school, uh, I went on a caving field trip with uh, my science class. Not like a touristy cave with a handrail on a sidewalk. No, like we all like suited up with this full body jumpsuit so the mud wouldn't get all over our clothes, protective knee pads, helmet with the headlamp, all that stuff. We were ready for anything that this, this cave could like throw at us. What we were not ready for was for our guide to get us lost. We all thought he was joking until he started having half of us turn off our headlamps, headlamps to conserve battery. We did, obviously, make it out. I am here. But our two-hour cave tour turned out to be a little bit closer to six. You see... We had been prepared for any external threat that the cave could bring our way. What we were not ready for was an internal threat of a false god. Pergamum was prepared to face the external threats of Rome. What they were not prepared to face was the internal threat of false guides, false teachers known as the Nicolaitans. I will probably call them the Nicolaitans. I've said that my whole life. That's not how you say it. It's Nicolaitans. Forgive me. They're possibly named after a founder, maybe by the name of Nicholas, which literally means victor of the people. Nike, you familiar with that word? It's a Greek word. It means victory. Laos, Greek word, means people. Nikolaos, Nike, Laos, victor of the people. So by calling themselves the Nicolaitans, they literally were calling themselves the victorious people. Or we might say, the conquerors. 
That's who we are. Revelation is going to use that. You've probably already noticed that it uses that theme of conquering, overcoming a ton over and over and over again. That all comes from the Greek verb nikao, Nike, same word being used right here. These people claim to be the conquerors. All we really know of them actually just comes from the text in front of us, really, for the most part, verses 14 and 15. And what we know of them is that they are compared to an Old Testament figure, Balaam. Balaam, interestingly enough, means roughly the exact same thing as the name Nicholas. But Balaam in the Old Testament was basically a prophet for hire. You can go back and read about him beginning in Numbers 22 and moving forward from there until he dies by the sword. But Balaam was basically this prophet for hire, and Balak, don't get those confused, Balak, the king of Moab, was afraid that God's people, the Israelites, were going to come in and conquer him. He goes, let me hire this pseudo-prophet Balaam over here to come in and curse these people so they won't conquer me. So he offers Balaam a lot of money. Balaam wants to do it. Just one problem, God won't allow him to. He goes anyway. The Lord even attempts to stop him on the road with an angel with a drawn sword. You may remember that story. It involves a talking donkey. We don't have time. You can go read about it in Numbers. But beside the point, he ends up there, and he ends up, instead of cursing the people, he actually ends up blessing them because God won't allow him to curse them. That's a problem. Because Balaam really wants to get paid. But he only gets paid if the people get cursed. And so here's what he does. He tells the king of Moab, I can't curse them because God won't let me, but here's what you do. Tempt the men of Israel into sexual immorality with your women. Use your women. Abuse them. Send them in. Tempt these Israelite men. And once you've got sexual hooks in them, go for the spiritual. Get your women to invite them to sacrificial feasts celebrating your gods and they will get involved. And once these people are involved in immorality and idolatry, they are just as good as cursed because their God is a jealous God and he will judge them. And that's exactly what happened and God did judge them. Eventually God did judge Balaam as well. I told you he was killed by the sword. And as a result, his name kind of became proverbial amongst God's people. They would use it as a label for anyone who tried to lead God's people astray into idolatry and immorality. And that is exactly what the Nicolaitans teach. Compromise with the idolatry and immorality of the surrounding culture in Pergamum. Now, here's the deal. There are three aspects to this compromise in Pergamum that we need to see. There's the theolo- that's being promoted by these Nicolaitans. There's the theological aspect of the compromise. There's the practical aspect and the neutral aspect. Let's take those one at a time. First, the theological. The Nicolaitans teach a theological compromise. They are a victory people. The conquerors. Most likely, they are teaching that because you are already victorious in Christ, because you have already conquered in Christ, then it doesn't matter what you do with your life. You can go to the feast of your local trade guild. Like, so what if you have to sacrifice to the God of your trade? Grace has already covered that. You're fine. You're saved by grace, not by works. Doesn't matter what you do. 
Yeah, you can go to the temple feast with your friends. So what if they involve immoral sexual practices with temple prostitutes? The more you sin, the more God pours out His grace. To which the Apostle Paul, I would remind you, would reply in Romans chapter 6, Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Shades. Shades, do not fall into the error of theological compromise that is still so prevalent today. Do not fall into the error that confuses and collapses justification and sanctification. Don't fall into this error that says, because you're justified, because Jesus has made you right through his death and resurrection, sin isn't a thing for you anymore. Confession and repentance aren't a thing for you anymore. Growth in godliness, not something you need to be concerned with because you've already been made perfect. Shades, that is taking things that are gloriously true and using them to try to cancel out other things that are gloriously true. Justification is gloriously true. You have been made right with God. You have been forgiven by God. You are united with Christ and His perfect life counts as yours. But do not use justification to eliminate sanctification. Justification doesn't eliminate sanctification. It empowers it. It is because I have been made right with God that I can grow in righteousness. It's because I have been forgiven that I can pray for forgiveness. It's because I have union with Christ that I can also have communion with Christ. Nothing will ever change my union with Christ. I've been justified, united to Him. Nothing will ever change that. But my communion with Him ebbs and flows, shades. Some days it's awesome, and other days not so much. It's like, it's like with my children. Nothing will ever change their union with me. My kids, no matter what they do. But our communion shades, it can be broken. And there needs to be discipline. And it needs to be restored. And it is my union with my children that empowers us, pushes us to pursue communion. My union with Christ doesn't free me to sin against Him precisely because I want to commune with Him. My union with Christ means when He moves, I move. Where He goes, I go. And he does not go into sin. My union empowers my pursuit of deeper communion. That is what it means to truly live as a victory people, as conquerors through Christ. The Nicolaitans' version of conquering, it was nothing more than theological compromise. And they pursued it for a practical purpose. This is the second aspect of the compromise in Pergamum that we need to see. We've seen the theological aspect. Second, the practical. The Nicolaitans teach a practical compromise. Practical compromise. There was a practical reason that they said, 
it's okay to eat food sacrificed to idols. And specifically here, just to remind you, we're not just talking about food that was sacrificed to idols and later sold in a meat market. Paul has a separate discussion about that somewhere else entirely. We're talking about food sacrificed to idols, cooked up and served in the temple in these feasts. And there was a practical reason. They said it's okay to eat that food in those temples and indulge in sexual immorality. I've actually already hinted at their practical reason. See, throughout Asia Minor, temple worship did not just involve individual sacrifice, just me coming and making a sacrifice. No, it involved, like I said, communal feasting. Sacrifices were cooked up, served at temple parties where worshipers indulged in all their appetites. These these drunken feasts usually included a side of sexual immorality with their main course of idolatry. Sometimes these parties were by invitation only, maybe for a particular trade guild. Usually each trade guild had its own individual god that they would worship and they would have their union parties, if you will. Their guild parties where you'd have to make a sacrifice. These were usually private parties and you'd have to have a ticket of admission, something like a specially marked white stone may be used to, to get into the party. And for you, within your trade, to, to shun that civic and corporate celebration, that would make you an outsider. That's, that's like voting against the union, right? If you've got a work union, it makes you like someone who crosses the picket line right here. Like instead of inclusion, if you did this, you're going to experience exclusion. Instead of pleasure at these feasts, you're going to end up being persecuted because you're seen as not loyal to your trade guild, not loyal to your city, not loyal to the empire. This would cost you socially, economically. It could cost you personally. It could even cost you your, your life like it did for Antipas. So the Nicolaitans have a very practical purpose in encouraging compromise. Negatively, their practical purpose is, let's avoid persecution. Positively, their practical purpose is, let's, let's appear to be good citizens and, and you know, be able to participate in the economy and profit economically and have good social standing. Aren't you glad, Shades, that we're never tempted to compromise our faith for these kinds of practical purposes? Shades, there are many Nicolaitan-type teachers in the church today teaching that it is okay to compromise with the idolatry and immorality of our world. Primarily, they are teaching this for practical reasons. It's not out of strong theological convictions. It's practical. Negatively, they teach it because they want to avoid persecution. I mean, in our culture, if you don't say that Jesus is not the only way to God, then you're out of step with, with the times. You need to get on board with the modern idolatry of pluralism. If you don't embrace the culture's modern notions of gender and sexuality, then you're on the wrong side of history. And you need to get on board with the modern immorality of choose-your-own-adventure sexuality. And if you don't, then be prepared to face social pressure, 
economic pressure and personal pressure through what you will be called, through what you will be labeled as. Don't believe that. Just ask our high school students. Ask them if they face and feel this. And our modern Nicolaitan teachers teach these things and they'll put their positive spin on it like if you'll just if we'll just give in to the culture's modern theology you know pluralism modern sexual pluralistic sexuality if we'll just give in to those things then we'll be able to keep christianity relevant in our modern world but shades that's trying to keep something relevant but it's not christianity and shades if i'm honest my current fear is not that we will give in. My current fear is that we will do what the Christians at Pergamum did, which was nothing. This is the third aspect of compromise in Pergamum. We've seen the theological and the practical, now the third, the neutral. The Pergamum Christians tolerate a neutral compromise there are members in the church at pergamum who hold to the teachings of the nicolaitans that we've been talking about there are members in that church that don't hold fast to the name of christ no they are holding same word in the text right there they are holding to the name of the nicolaitans to their teaching to their word to their way and what is the rest of the church doing about it nothing they they have comp the rest of the church has compromised by being neutral with the false teaching of the nicolaitans just letting it percolate shades don't miss this this is where idolatry and immorality begins but before it ends in spiritual death like Sardis, before you even get mixed up in its practices, like Thyatira, it begins by being neutral with sin and being neutral with false guides who promote it. We can be as prepared as we want to be shades against external threats. But if we make peace and are neutral with internal false guides, we have already begun to compromise this is where compromise with idolatry and immorality begins and i know that the pergamum christians are being neutral with the nicolaitans because of verse 16 where christ commands therefore repent he's not calling the nicolaitans those holding the teaching of the nicolaitans to repent he's calling everybody else who's not doing anything to repent like all you got to do is is read the rest of the verse to see he's calling these christians to account for not disciplining these members who are holding to a heresy he you can see that just keep reading therefore repent if not i will come to you who i'm calling to repent i will come to you soon and war against them those holding to this teaching i will war against them with the sword of my mouth in other words if you won't combat their error with truth i'll come and do it the the sword of jesus's mouth is his word the truth that cuts through every error, that puts every lie to death. And he says that just like a sword came for Balaam, it's coming for the Nicolaitans. Christ rebukes those 
who compromise with any other name. Do we, Shade? People bring false teaching into the church. Are we neutral towards it or do we discipline it? Lovingly, the, the, the first aim of church discipline is always love. The aim is repentance and restoration. You can see that clearly through reading these letters that Christ sends to his churches where he's calling them to repent because he wants to, them to return to him and to be restored. We're going to see that very clearly when we get to the final letter of the church at Laodicea where he says he disciplines those whom he loves. But if they will not repent and return and be restored, he will remove them. We learned that in the letter to the Ephesians. Repent or I will remove your lampstand. Do we lovingly seek to practice church discipline to protect the truth of the gospel, not compromise the truth of the gospel, lovingly call people to repentance and reconciliation, and if they won't repent and reconcile and be restored, remove them. We cannot be neutral with those who teach that it's okay to compromise with idolatry and the immorality of our culture. We cannot be neutral with those who, who teach that it's okay to compromise with the idolatries and the ideologies of our culture. Do we do that? When I look at the at the history of Pergamum. When we, when we, I think this morning, look at the history of Pergamum, I think it is easy for us to see the pagan ideology of that city. Zeus, Asclepius, emperor worship, easy to see, pagan ideology. Reject that. But do we see the, the pagan ideologies that exist in our own day? Or are we more neutral to the ideologies that have plagued the history of our city? We've seen the ideologies that have plagued the history of Pergamum. What about the ideologies that have plagued the history of Birmingham? Our city has been known nationally for the history of its sin with regard to racism. And Shades, you don't have to rewind the clock to the 1960s to find people who will claim the name of Christ while teaching an ideology of white supremacy, a satanic ideology of white supremacy. Satan was the first supremacist. First created being to try and say he was supreme above all others. Supremacist ideology is a satanic ideology. People who try to claim the name of Christ and hold on to such racist ideologies, they still exist. Nicolaitans. Are we neutral? Neutrality is where embracing ideology begins. And it leads to idolatry and immorality. And Shades, as your pastor who was born in Paris, Texas, raised in Albany, Georgia, and lives in Birmingham, Alabama, I will not be complicit with the sin of racism. We will not be neutral because the gospel isn't neutral. Shades, please hear my heart. Don't, 
Don't look at the issues of racism that are swirling around us. Don't look at them through the lens of CNN or through the lens of Fox News. Don't look at them through the lens of the Times or the Journal. Don't look at them through the lens of the political left or the political right. Look at racism through the lens of the gospel. The gospel that declares we are all made in the image of God. Not a one of us is more evolved and advanced than the other. That's not our ideology. It's somebody's, but it's not ours. We believe that we were all made by the same creator. And the gospel declares that we are all in need of the same savior. The cross is the great leveler of humanity. That's why supremacists have to burn it. Because the cross declares that we have all sinned and we all need the same Savior. And through the cross, we are united with the Savior and united with one another, made brothers and sisters in the family of God, united into one people of God. Where Colossians 3.11 says, Here there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all, and we dare not reject that gospel reality to do so reminds me of the story that jesus told peter in matthew 18 do you remember this story how many times should i forgive my brother basically asking is there a point that i reach where i'm better than my brother jesus tells this story about a man who owed an insurmountable amount to a king and the king forgives it. And then the man goes out. And he finds a servant who owns him pennies. And he chokes him. And you hear that servant cry from the text, I can't breathe. Jade's my heart heavy for the family of George Floyd for, for those four officers who need the gospel for our country our church for our police officers whom I have nothing but the most respect for so many amazing, just, merciful police officers who daily put their lives on the line. My heart is heavy for them because they're finding themselves at square one again, trying to build trust with a community again. Shades. We cannot be forgiven by God for everything and then act as if we are somehow superior to someone else. That is to reject the reality of the gospel and we dare not. We will not live neutrally. We will live proactively to show the reality to the world of what God does through the gospel. We, the church, 
are supposed to show the world what the end of racism looks like. Because we believe the end of racism is coming. Revelation 22 is coming where John says, Then an angel showed me a river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God. Not the throne of Satan and where he dwells, from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. We believe that reality is coming. Not a reality where color has been canceled but where it has been magnified and glorified in perfection to the praise and honor of God Almighty who created every tribe, every people, every tongue and calls them to himself through Christ. We live to testify to that coming reality. We do not live neutral. We live our lives through the lens of the Gospel, not compromising with any name this world has to offer. No idolatry. No ideology. No immorality. We do not compromise with any Nicolaitans, conquerors, because we aim to truly conquer through Christ. Which is precisely what He exhorts us to do. We've seen the word of His commendation. We've seen His word of accusation. Now finally, let's finish with His word of exhortation. See you with me. Thirdly and finally, exhortation. Christ exhorts us to conquer by a new name. Revelation 2 and verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I'll give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. It's as if Jesus looks at this church and He says, Pergamum, I know if you cling to My name and you do not compromise with any other name, I know that your culture will judge you guilty, treasonous, but I will judge you not guilty. White stones. White stones were often used in court cases for jurors to cast a vote of innocence. I'm going to give you a white stone. I'll judge you as not guilty, Pergamum. I know, Pergamum, I know that if you do not compromise with the other names of your culture, I know that they will exclude you from their idolatrous feast, but you will be included in mine. You remember that earlier I told you white stones with special markings were often used as admission tickets to various feasts? I think what we see here is Christ's judgment of us as not guilty, the white stone, becomes our admission to His feast of hidden manna. Manna was the food that God provided to His people when they wandered through the wilderness. Revelation 12 will describe our living in these last days as being like living in that wilderness. And we may not be able to see God's provision now as we are excluded from the feast of the world, but a day is coming when we will feast in the house of Zion on the hidden manna of Christ himself. John chapter 6. 
Jesus compares himself to that man. He says, I am the true food. In other words, I am what will satisfy you. Knowing Christ will fill us and satisfy us more than any immoral pleasure this world has to offer. It's like Jesus is saying, Pergo, I know that if you cling to my name and do not compromise with any other name, your culture will exclude you from all its immoral pleasures. But I will give you the purest pleasure forever, knowing me. I I think that's what's meant by the new name on the white stone. The prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 62 that God would one day give His people a new name. And when Jesus, who stood in the place as the representative of God's people, Jesus, the true Israel, when He died and rose again, God bestowed on Him the name that is above every other name, that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, Yahweh. In other words, through His death and resurrection, the Father revealed Jesus' true identity, His true name. It wasn't really a new name, it's the one He's always had, but we saw it as new. Through his death and resurrection, he is Yahweh. That's his name. And it's not merely an identifying label. It is a revelation of his identity. And those who know Jesus as Yahweh, know him as God in the flesh, they have received that new name on a white stone. It's been revealed to them, even if nobody else can see it. It's been revealed to them, and, they, and it marks them as his own. Throughout the rest of the book of Revelation, we're going to see Christ mark his people again and again by writing his name upon them. That's him revealing who he is to them and revealing who they are. They're his. This will be the purest pleasure that will be ours forever. We will know more and more of the name of Jesus, who he is, more and more of him shades may we have ears to hear what the spirit says to the churches may he take this word of exhortation and wield it as his sword in our lives to empower us to cling to the name of christ may the spirit wield this word to empower us to conquer by clinging to the name of christ without conflict.